I was thinking this morning, if I was going to try to sum up, Lance, in one sort of sentence or one point, what I learned as your disciple when you moved to Arkansas in 1996, what's been the lasting impact? If I could just kind of put it in one thing, I, I got it to two, and they're interrelated. One is your insistence that that theology was driving every choice I ever made in my life. I had kind of was living in a bifurcated world where here's my theology and here's my life, and it's important to have good theology. I'm a pastor, for heaven's sakes. I better be orthodox. But the, the daily importance of it, the link, the, 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 the way they interface, it, it just sort of, I just kept them in two different worlds. And you sort of, and one of the ways that showed itself was I actually believed when I met you that that methods of ministry were neutral, that methodology was neutral. As long as you didn't change the message, how you went about it really didn't matter. We could be as creative as we wanted. And in one sense, that's sort of true. But, but certainly in 1996, there were lots of men beating a pragmatic drum about how to do church that were, were, were loosening their theology. And just, you never said it. It's just the, all these things that I just caught from being around you was that was it was a challenge to me, accidentally, just by being himself, challenging me that, you know, God doesn't just tell us what to do and what to preach. He actually tells us how to do church. Now, he didn't tell us what color carpet or whether to use projection or hymnals or pipe organs or drums, but he did tell us how to do church. And in a time when there was a lot of pushback saying we don't, we, that, that, that all bets are off, you can do anything you want as long as you say Jesus died for sinners... Uh, I needed that. You inoculated me and protected me from a great deal of danger. Simultaneous with this emphasis on theology, driving not only what we would do together in public ministry as partners, but simultaneous with it was that was, was how theology was driving my personal choices. And, and one of the ancillary benefits of that was that you deepened my view of sin. You, you, my view of sin was kind of what I did and didn't do, words and deeds, but not really seeing, confessing, renouncing, and repenting of sin in regards to my heart attitudes and my thought. In particular, Lance began to demonstrate over time as he taught me the scriptures, as I sat in, a, in, a, in the, well, I would have sat right where you're sitting for 28 years, right in that row. And, and, and the impact of the preaching over time was that Wrong views of God were what were ultimately leading to every sin in my life. And that if I would straighten out, not just sort of put a band-aid on behaving better and speaking better and thinking better, but thinking about God rightly would bear tremendous righteous fruit. Thinking about God wrongly would lead to anemic and, and, and weak living. And I was just thinking this morning, that's the best way I know to say it. So you coming and just saying theology matters. It matters for your public ministry, Todd, and it matters for your private life and how you understand sin. And so if you'll open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 1, we're going to look together. And here's good news. I am setting my notes aside because I have 20 minutes to preach, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And I love everything. We're, this is like, think about it, What a feast we're having this morning. We've gotten to sing to the Lord. We've gotten to have worship ascend from our hearts by hearing a report from a missionary. We're going to open God's Word together and take the Lord's Supper together. This is about as good as it gets this side of heaven. So, Deuteronomy chapter 1 the reason, is an example of, of the way pressure in life, circumstances, prove what's already in your heart. In the hour of temptation, it is too late to retrofit your theology. When temptation comes, God brings pressure or 
there is, God never tempted anyone, but God either brings a difficult circumstance or you're in an hour of temptation. And when that happens, what you already believe about God is about to be squirted out into life. Think of your heart like a sponge. You put pressure on it and whatever's already inside comes squeezing out. Think about Joseph. Uh, the, the mistreatment of his brothers, the false accusation of Potiphar's wife, ultimately the opportunity to reconcile with his brothers. What does he say? He, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Throughout Joseph's life, the reason he responds so well is because of a lofty view of God that he has. And that high view of God kept him from compromising in times of temptation. John the Baptist is another excellent example. His, his disciples come to him and bait him, tempt him to be offended. Everybody's leaving you and going to Jesus. And his disciples are offended. It's too late for, for John the Baptist to figure out at that moment, what do I really believe about Christ? And instead he says, well, that's how it should be. I must decrease. Jesus must increase. That, that belief already existed. And so he sailed through that temptation when his disciples baited him to petty, jealous pride. And he does great. On the flip side, what we have today in front of us, I just want to show you two ways, two wrong views of one, a wrong view of God, and the other, a wrong view of themselves that led Israel into what God calls twice in Deuteronomy 1, rebellion. And so I've called this message the roots of rebellion. What's the sin under the sin? Not it was bad that Israel wouldn't enter the land, but what What was underneath that? What drove it? And then it was bad when Israel was told, don't go into the land. You've abrogated your opportunity. So turn around and wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And what do they do? No, 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 we'll go, we'll go. And they go up on their own. So what's driving that? What belief system is in place? So that under that kind of pressure, that kind of command from God, why do they do so poorly? So if I could just a few, use a few minutes demonstrating to you the sin underneath Israel's rebellion, the roots that grew their rebellious actions, the thoughts of God and the thoughts of themselves, we, I, I said at the beginning of the service, this inextricable link between your view of man and view of God that led Israel to be characterized by rebellion. So if you'll read with me, beginning in chapter 1, verse 19, let me read down through verse 40 with you, and then we'll examine what it is that they believe that led to this first rebellion. So basically, this passage presents two different roots that led to rebellion. One is, if you're taking notes, in verses 19 through 40, rebellion was rooted in a fearful refusal to trust God. So the number one root of rebellion, verses 19 to 40, a fearful refusal to trust God. Then, in verses 41 through 46, it's a rebellion that's rooted in a presumptuous insistence to trust themselves. And both of these are completely unprecedented. So when you get to the book of Deuteronomy, here in chapter 1, we're about to hear Moses speak to God's people, and he's talking to, think of it this way, Israel 2.0. This is the next generation. Now, they came with their parents. Some of them would have been born in the wilderness, but they came with their parents out of Egypt or they'd been born in the, in the wilderness. But these are not the people who decided, we're not going into the land. These are their children. And so, so the Lord has already proclaimed his, but it's interesting how Moses talks to them because of their solidarity with their family, because many of them would have been there and heard what Moses said and saw what God did. He speaks to them in an interesting storytelling technique as if they were the ones who did it. 
And so he's going to say, and then I said to you, well, technically, Moses, you said it to their parents, but you see what he's doing? So read with me verses 19 to 40, and let me show you the, the root of rebellion in their refusal to trust God. Then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, just as the Lord our God had commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea, and I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is about to give us. See, the Lord has placed the land before you. Go up and take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has spoken to you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And then all of you approached me and said, let us send men before us that we may search out the land for us and they can bring back word of the way by which we should go up in the cities which we shall enter. And the thing pleased me, and I took twelve of your men, one man from each tribe, and they turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eskel and spied it out. Then they took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down to us. They brought back to us a good report, and they said, it is a good land which the Lord our God is about to give us. I, I can't help but stop here. Notice that Moses does not mention the bad report of the ten spies. He just says, and they came back and gave a good report, said it's a good land. For Moses, the 10 unbelieving spies were unimportant, just as in a few moments, the people of God are not going to mention the two faithful spies, and they're only going to mention the 10 that gave the bad report. So based on a view of God and what's right and wrong, it even affects the way Moses recounts history. Verse 26, yet, despite this good report, yet you were not willing to go up but rebelled, that's the first of two times in this, in this portion we're looking at this morning that they're described as rebels. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God and you grumbled in your tents and said, because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go up? Our brethren have made our hearts melt, saying, the people are bigger and taller than we, and the cities are fortified to the heaven, and besides, we saw the son of the Anakim there. Then I said to you, do not be shocked, nor fear them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes, and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you, just as a man carries his son in all the ways in which you have walked until you came to this place. But for all this, you did not trust the Lord your God, who goes before you on your way to seek out a place for you to encamp in fire by night and cloud by day to show you the way in which you should go. Then the Lord heard the sound of your words and he was angry and took an oath saying, not one of these men, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore to give your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it. To him and to his sons, I will give the land on which he set, has set his foot, because he has followed the Lord fully, the opposite of rebellion. The Lord God was angry with me also on your account, saying, not even you shall enter there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter there. Encourage him, for he will cause Israel to inherit it. Moreover, your little ones, who you said would become prey, and your sons, who this day have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall enter there, and I will give it to them, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn around 
set out for the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. The majority of our message, the majority of this passage is focused on this first rebellion that's based on sinful fear. I'm going to assume that you know enough about the first portion where the Lord tells him to go out. He's recounting. Remember what your parents did? They got right up to the edge of the land. And I said, this is it. It's time to go. This land that I've, I've, I've proven to you I have the power to give you by what I just did in Egypt. But more importantly, remember the promise I made to your forefather, Abraham. And they come right up to the land and God says, I've given it to you. You get to live in cities and you never built, you never lifted a stone to build it. You're going to inherit vineyards. You never moved a rock out of the ground or planted. I'm going to give it to you. And shockingly, the people say no. The end of the, the, the latter third of this passage is, is God's angry judgment of them. God who is slow to anger, great in mercy, abounding in loving kindness, but eventually does bring judgment, and even that judgment for the purpose of ultimately bringing Israel to their senses, so they'd come back to him. So it's really the middle of this passage I want us to look at, and that is, why would they not go in? Why did your parents not enter? And Moses does a, under the Spirit of God inspired, he sort of does a divine x-ray of their heart. What was in their parents' heart? Something that they'd carried in their heart, a secret distrust of God they'd been nursing every day since the day they left Egypt. What was it? And it is shocking what they accuse God of. So look at verse 26. You were not willing to go, your parents actually, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. Why did they do that? Because verse 21 says they were afraid. Don't be afraid nor dismayed. To be afraid is the idea of the, uh, that's, that's something we're very familiar with, that kind of fear. To be dismayed is to just be discouraged and overwhelmed. So he says, don't be scared and don't be overwhelmed. That's the command. Well, they really don't buy into a view of God. They really don't listen to that. And, and while it technically comes as a command, they are imperatives, really it just comes as kind of an encouragement. It's meant to be a consolation. Don't, there's nothing to be afraid of that I, your God, can't take care of. There, there's, there, there's no reason. So what's going on in their heart that made them be afraid and then ultimately disobey the Lord? That's why I said earlier, when you give way to sinful fear, you don't become a coward, you become a rebel. That's why passages like this are, are, are helpful to us. I, I mean, rebellion sounds so much uglier than I was just struggling with unbelief. Right? <laughs> Disobedience sounds so much stronger than, well, I just had my doubts. And God just exposed it. It's rebellion. What is it they believe about God? Look at verse 27. This is shocking. You grumbled in your tents and said, because the Lord hates us, he's brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of our enemies to destroy us. This is shocking. They took the most preeminent proof of God's love for them and perverted it as the motive of God being hate. How can this happen to the human heart? You give way to fear of the Anakim? You give way to fear of mighty walled cities, Israel? And what happens to you is you're willing to accuse God. And it doesn't take very much to get their hearts to go there. Why? I think two things. One is they've been nursing this secret distrust of God for years. That's number one. The other reason they get here so quickly is because our hearts, it just doesn't take much of a test to make us collapse and, and, and throw in the towel and just say, the Lord must hate me. What was the test? You're going to have to believe 
that God who already demonstrated to you in the past that he could deliver you from countries and powers stronger than the Amorites. Egypt was an infinitely larger dynasty and kingdom. God's already done the greater, and now our little hearts cannot trust him with the lesser. That's the nature of who we are. And so that's why the apostles would say about the Old Testament, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, These things happen to them as an example for us so we would not crave the evil things that they crave. In Romans 15, the same thing. These promises came as an encouragement to us to give us hope. So the New Testament tells us how to read our Old Testament. They accuse God of hating them. Though though He's been a mighty deliverer, though He promises to continue to be a mighty deliverer, He just says this, you you are so ready to accuse me of hating you. It reminds me of a teenager who you've said they can't go to some party because there's not going to be an adult there, and they go down the hall, and they slam their door, and they say what? You don't love me, and you're trying to ruin my life. That's Israel. You don't love us, God. I I do love you. I just delivered you out of Egypt. No, you don't love us. I'm handing you a land. I'm trying to bless you, and you are so afraid. And you've given way to that fear that you've decided, I'm too small to deliver you, that I won't be faithful to my promises. So you give way to sinful fear and accuse me of hating you. In verse 28, they make a second accusation against God. Not only does he not love us, but they say this, the Lord is unreasonable. God is unloving and God is unreasonable. A a God who really loved me wouldn't, wouldn't make me go through this scary thing. Wouldn't ask me to trust him in these circumstances. But not only is he unloving, he's unreasonable. Look, at, look listen to them whining in verse 28. Where can we go up? In other words, it's impossible. Given what our brother said, bigger and taller people, big and fortified cities, walls that go all the way up to heaven, and, and giants in the land, they said it's impossible. What God asks is unreasonable. It can't be done. And so they continue in their determined doubt. In the second half of the passage, really really the last third of the passage, we have a second kind of rebellion. Turn, or if you're not there, verse 41, you'll see that the Lord calls them rebels again down in verse 30, 43. Instead, you rebelled. But read with me at verse 41. This time, a rebellion that's not rooted in a sinful distrust, a, a fear and a refusal to believe God. This time, just the opposite. And that is a, a determination to trust in something, but it isn't the Lord, it's in themselves. Verse 41, then you said to me, we have sinned. Now that sounds good, right? Hey, that's a confession of sin, good for Israel. But this turns out to be just really a pseudo-confession. This is false repentance. How do I know that? Well, look what says next. We have sinned against the Lord. And then they say this, we will indeed go up and fight. Well, a real repentance would sound like this, we have sinned against the Lord. And now we will obey his voice and we will turn from the land he promised and go back into the wilderness. But instead, they say, we've sinned against the Lord and we will indeed go up and fight. In the last three years, Tandy and I have had the thrill of becoming grandparents. So we went from no grandkids to four in three years. I love this chapter of my life because I have to watch my kids do to their kids what I once had to do to them. (laughs) And so one of our grandkids the other day was, uh, had been, was diso- mom had given a command, don't do this. The child began pursuing that and mommy started walking towards the child. And the child knows what's going to happen next. And what did they do? They started saying, no, 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 I obey now. I obey now, mommy. 
So first Israel is a teenager, now Israel's a toddler. Okay, we've sinned. Whoa, we've sinned. We don't get to go in at all now? Okay, we will go up. We've sinned against the Lord. And so the, the, the pride, the hubris, the self-trust, look how the Lord depicts it here. We will indeed go up and fight just as our Lord commanded us. Actually, you already disobeyed that command. He just commanded you to leave. But we're going to go back and obey now. And every man of you girded on his weapons of war, and look what was in their heart, and regarded it as an easy thing to go up into the hill country. What is going on in their hearts? An easy thing to go up and displace people as if, as if they didn't need God's mighty power. So God, whose promises they would not trust, now refused to heed His warning. In both cases, disregarding the spoken word of God, either a word of comfort and consolation or a word of command and warning, and they refused. They regarded it as an easy thing to go up into the hill country. Talk about self-trust as if all they had really needed to do before was just obey God, go on in and conquer in their own might. So, okay, we're a little late, but we'll do it. This is like the Lord's just, look what he's, at his continued perspective, verse 42. And the Lord said to me, Moses, say to them, Israel 1.0, do not go up nor fight, for I am not among you. I just sang that in the eyes of faith, I believed I'm not alone. I haven't been abandoned. They have been abandoned. And they're going to go up anyway. So God kindly warns them. I mean, it's just shocking. Think about it. God, you don't love me. You hate me. God says, I love you. I delivered you out. And did you catch that beautiful image? I carried you. Like a father carries his son in the wilderness. When you were too weary, Daddy, I'm too tired, I can't walk anymore. The Lord didn't abandon his people, he picked them up. And now you question whether he loves you or whether he's reasonable in his commands. Now the Lord says, I'm, I'm not picking you up, I'm not carrying you, and they're going to go anyway. Verse 43, so I spoke to you, but you would not listen Instead, you rebelled against the command of the Lord. The earlier command was to go, and they rebelled. Now the command is leave, and they rebelled. You rebelled against the command of the Lord and acted presumptuously and went into the hill country. And the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and crushed you from Seir to Hormah. Then you return and wept before the Lord. But the Lord would not listen to your voice, nor give ear to you. So you remained in Kadesh many days, the days that you spent there. Many days, that's an understatement. 38 more years. You see how a passage like this creates urgency. You must deal with the roots of rebellion. In other words, you, the answer to the passage like this is, so don't ever say to God the following, you don't love me. No, no, no. Don't ever believe in your heart that God doesn't love you. And if God gives you a command not to do something and you say, this is not behavioral modification. This is not changing your words and deeds. The Lord's exposing the belief in your heart. You refuse to trust me, though you have nothing but precedence for trust. And oddly, you're determined to trust yourself and your efforts Though equally there, you have no 
precedence for trusting yourself. And so this would be one of uh, dozens, hundreds, a, a Bible that's filled with stories that expose what is the belief of God that drove their rebellion. Well, in their case, an anemic view of God, that he might abandon them, that, that he might not be with them, that he wasn't big enough to conquer their fears. They gave way to that fear, and at some point, you give way to your fear, you will dig your heels in, and when God says, obey me, you won't do it. I mean, let's just think about this. In little things, you're, you're, you have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone, and you're afraid. And so what do you do? You rebel and say nothing, though the Lord saved you and left you here on the earth to spread his good news. And that would be a little micro picture of it. You go through some great difficulty in your life and you're afraid, you just won't obey the Lord. Or God has warned you about something specifically in his word he doesn't want you to do, and you say to yourself, no, I can do it. I can handle this. Young people, this is a particular temptation for you as you're sort of evaluating the theology that's being passed on to you. No, no, no. I know my dad has warned me that if I go into that, I'll probably, if I touch fire, I'll probably get burned, but I'm the one person in history who can touch fire without scars. Trust me, dad. (laughs) Think about it. You just said, trust me. No, trust the Lord. And so you you may want to go back when you have more time and just meditate on the passage. What the Lord does is an x-ray of Israel's heart. And just says, you're filled with doubt about me. You give way to sinful fear, and it made you rebel against me. Sadly, you're also filled with a great deal of trust in yourself. And that, too, has made you disobey me. So whether you're disregarding the Word of God as a consoling promise or a warning, rebellion is rebellion in the sight of God. This has been going on since Genesis 3 in the first temptation. What did Satan tempt Eve to do? to doubt the goodness of God. He's holding out on you. The reason he doesn't want you to eat is because you'll become like him, and he's threatened by that. And then to doubt the warning of God. See how both sides of the coin were doubted by Adam and Eve. Both sides of the coin are doubted here. So there it is, that inextricable link, what you believe about God and what you believe about yourself. There they are. So they don't believe God loves them, and so their view of themselves elevated. So in a way, Lance, this is 20 minutes of applied theology that you brought to my life over almost three decades ago now, and I'm in your debt. It's a pleasure to get to feed your people a little piece of the meals that, that you fed me for faithfully for 14 years. So, so let's pray, then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. You might consider in your own heart, if the Spirit of God has convicted you, that you know what? I'm guilty of both sides of that coin. There are times when in fear I disobey. There are times when in self-trust I disobey. Then confess those things to the Lord as we come because what we're saying in the Lord's Supper more than anything is I I don't trust in myself. There's no reason to trust in myself. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. The ultimate proof from you that we could, nothing less than the death of the God-man could rid our hearts of this kind of doubt and self-trust. Lord, we are Israel. Though you have carried us as a man carries his son, yet you have to say in this passage, yet for all this you would not trust me. Lord, that indictment is true of us as well. And so, Lord, as we confess now, as we, as we partake of the bread and the cup, as we confess, Lord, forgive us again for doubting your goodness and your love for us because circumstances challenged our faith. That's all it took. A little bit of hardship. 
and your people turned on you on a dime. Lord, we don't want to accuse you of ever doing anything wrong. And you know how quick we are to trust ourselves as well, well, Lord. So we're renouncing that together, even as we take the bread and the cup now. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.